0: So uh, let me ask a question. I'm wondering, how many of you have ever had a celebrity sighting? That is, you I don't know, in, uh, New York City or Los Angeles, and you see a, you know, a rock star, movie star, a sports superstar. Well, I got to tell you, last November, Chris and I were in New York City. We were in Manhattan, and we saw nobody. Nobody. Um, we didn't, but we saw some, we saw people seeing someone. Uh, we turned down this side street, and it was like I think it was like a shoe store had two black SUVs parked in front of it, and there was all these people. Up and down the street, phones that are ready, kind of like looking across the street through the windows to see if they could get a picture of somebody, and so we 're walking through this, and I turned to this guy and I said, "Hey w- w- what 's up?" And he told me the hip hop artist that was inside. Um, I, I got to tell you, not a lot of hip hop on my Pandora these days, so it wasn't particularly relevant to me, but incredibly relevant to the people uh, standing outside, just waiting to get a picture. so i didn 't have a celebrity sighting. But I saw a sighting of a sighting, if that counts for anything. So uh, see, uh, some people tend to attract a crowd. And something I'd like you to do is to kind of, some of you to kind of revise your image of Jesus just a little bit. Uh, If your image of Jesus is seeing kind of the gentle healer traveling alone from village to village, you need to revise that image. When Jesus starts healing and when he starts his public ministry and when he starts speaking, people flock to him. People swarm him. And so often, we read about a story in relationship to Jesus. Jesus is there, but he's not alone. He's got his uh, entourage of disciples. In addition to that, he's got these people swarming around him. Now, this is exactly what we see when you see him in a location of a town called uh, Nain. Uh, Nain is, uh, Jesus' headquarters is in Capernaum, right, on the Sea of Galilee. Last weekend... Uh, There was a story from Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is in Capernaum, his headquarters, his base of operations, and he heals the servant of a military officer. Very next story in our Bible, also in Luke 7, Jesus migrates like 20, 25 miles to the southwest to this village of Nain, but he's not alone. He's got people swarming him, but it's easy to miss if you're reading fast. Here's the verse from Luke 7, uh, verse 11. It says, soon afterward, after he healed the military officer's servant, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a and a large crowd went along with him. So Jesus is about to go into a town gate, into this town, and there's just this, this, all these people, this large crowd, and something happens. As Jesus is with this large crowd going into the village, there is a large crowd coming out of the village, and these two crowds meet each other at the town gate. The crowd coming out of the village is a funeral procession. Someone has died. There, it would not have been a closed casket. It would have been something on a stretcher called a beer. And he's, this young man is being carried outside. Jesus bumps into a funeral procession as he's entering the city. So it's like two crowds meet. The next verse gives us a description. As he approached the town gate... A dead person was being carried out. Listen to the tragedy of this situation. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from town was with her. Crowd coming out of the town, crowd going into the town. They stop there. They meet each other. Do you see how the situation there is described? Son of a certain woman, and she was a widow. What this means is this was not her first loss. First, she loses her husband. And maybe women in the village console her. You have lost your protector. You have lost your provider. But give praise to God. He has given you a son who will be your protector and who will be your provider. And now this. I think it's a triple loss. First she loses her husband, now she loses her son. I think something she also loses is her stability. Her buoyancy. Her vision for how the future was supposed to turn out. And these two groups meet at the town gate in the village of Nain. In this this story, as we explore it together... uh, We're not only told what Jesus sees, we're told how Jesus feels. We're not only told what he encounters, we're told what he experiences inside as he encounters human tragedy and as he encounters human suffering. And I think this is important because uh, the thought may have occurred to you over the years or maybe now. Does God care about human suffering? Does my pain, does my suffering, does it affect God at all? And in what way might He be at work to remedy human suffering? But human suffering is a given. I don't think it serves us well to sugarcoat suffering. That is, to treat severe pain as if it is not severe. I also do not think it will serve us well to believe that God will protect good people from hardship. Good and holy people have suffered deeply over time. So I think this story as we see how Jesus feels about this situation, is just going to give us a wonderful opportunity just to address some of those things. Does God care? How is he affected by our pain? And is he at work in some way to remedy the suffering that humans experience? Uh, let's unpack this story through four insights, four separate insights from this story in Luke chapter 7. And the first insight is just what I've called the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus, that is, what does Jesus experience inside when he encounters this widow leaving town to bury her only son? We find these words in Luke chapter 7, verse 13. It says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Two crowds meet there in the street. Jesus, when he saw her, his heart went out to her. He says, don't don't cry. Is there anything in that that makes you want to like Jesus more? His heart went out to her. His heart went out to her because it was so wrong. Our kids are supposed to bury us. We're not supposed to bury them. It's so wrong. It's so backwards. It's so out of order. We brace ourselves that someday we will bury our parents. We know that we will someday bury our parents. We are totally unprepared to bury our kids. And his heart goes out to her. I think his heart went out to her for a different reason. In our culture, in this century, we got something called life insurance. Often a husband passes, life insurance policy kicks in, and sometimes uh, the the widow is on fairly solid uh, financial foundation because of a life insurance policy. Also, we got this thing called Social Security. You pay into it, you reach a certain age, it can carry you into your senior years at some level. Back in the day, no life insurance policies. Social Security, her son was her Social Security. (laughs) He was her social security. He was her protector and her provider. And Jesus' Jesus' heart goes out to her. I think Jesus' heart goes out to her because she had lost a vision of the future that she had predicted where there might be a marriage, there might be grandkids, there might be a son walking her into her old age. That's now gone. She loses her buoyancy and she loses her stability and Jesus' heart goes out to her. Jesus sees the situation. His heart goes out to her and he says to her, don't cry there's a word for this, what he, what he feels, what he experiences. And the word in our Bible that describes this, his heart went out to her thing, is called compassion. This is the compassion of Christ. This is the compassion of Jesus. And this is not the only time we see this. The, you read through the life and ministry of Jesus, his compassion shows up again and again and again. It's his compassion for the vulnerable. His compassion for the vulnerable Uh, Jesus is uh, (laughs) people are swarming him it says in Mark chapter 6 it says that there were so many people around that his disciples didn't even have time to eat Always a crowd, always people coming and going, always requests. And Jesus says this to his disciples, to his followers, let's get away from here, let's go to a quiet place, let's get some rest. They get in a boat, they cross a segment of the Sea of Galilee, people spot Jesus, they ID him, and they run around the lake shore to beat him there. And as the boat's docking, the crowd is already growing. Now, I don't know what you would do if your vacation got interrupted like that. But if I'm one of the disciples, I'm going like, okay, Jesus, back in the boat, we're crossing the other side, we can play this game all day. And that's not what happens. What happens is Jesus looks at the crowd and he has compassion. This is the way it's worded in Mark 6. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on the people because they were like shepherdless sheep. Uh, sheep without a shepherd are very rapidly lunch, <laughs> devoured by wolves. He looked at this crowd and he just realized how vulnerable they were, how impressionable they were, how vulnerable they were to the next loud voice in their lives, how vulnerable they were to get enticed into the next revolt. He sees them, they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on the vulnerable. Not only on the vulnerable, he has compassion on the depleted. Another time, you'd find this in Mark chapter eight. He's teaching the crowd, day one, day two, day three. These people are hanging on to his words, they're listening, they're learning, but they haven't been eating much at all. And so Jesus, send them off, tell them to get out of here, get back to town. And Jesus said, no, literally, some of these people are so depleted physically that they will drop. Some of these people will pass out on the way back home just because they're so rundown and depleted. Mark chapter eight, Jesus says, I have, I have, I have compassion for these people for they've already been with me three days and have nothing to do to eat jesus has compassion for the depleted jesus has compassion for the depleted in your moment of worn out exhaustion what if jesus feels something for your situation i think here of parents of very small children who are not getting an amount of sleep, required to function from day to day. What if Jesus feels for that situation? I think of those of you traveling through a family situation that is keeping you up at night, and it is wearing you out, and it is wearing you down. Jesus has compassion for the depleted. At one point, Jesus would say, come to me, come just come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation to the worn out and the exhausted and the depleted. So the vulnerable, the depleted, also uh, he has compassion for the disabled. Jesus is traveling through the town of Jericho. It's near the final days of his life. He's with an entourage, people hear this crowd coming and two guys who are blind go what's going on what's going on i say jesus is coming and they start to yell from the side of the road jesus son of david have mercy on me jesus son of david have mercy on me uh, now blindness back in the day there's no there's no cataract surgery no cataract surgery There's any number of things that could happen to you that could not be remedied jesus son of david have mercy on me and uh this is what happens in matthew chapter 20 jesus had compassion on them touches their eyes and heals them of their blindness. Uh, compassion for the disabled. And our, our, our current story, compassion for the grieving, and it just says his heart, his heart went out to her. My friends, this is just a sampling. This is not thorough, this is not a complete list, but just those four words together, compassion for the vulnerable, compassion for the depleted, compassion for the disabled, compassion for the grieving. Why is that important? Because when you're in church and we talk about trusting Jesus, trust Jesus. I don't trust people I don't know. Get to know him. And if he's one whose heart goes out, who has compassion... For the, for the vulnerable and the depleted and the disabled whose heart goes out to the grieving, there's something about that that should cause us to want to lean in and to trust him more. By the way, did you find yourself on that list anywhere? <laughs> depleted, grieving, something in your body is just not working like you wish it would work this highly vulnerable time in your life. See, I believe this is his compassion for you. Jesus' disciple Peter would later say to us, cast, throw all your care upon him because he cares for you. What if he cares? What if he cares deeply about human tragedy and suffering? Now, we're not only know about the heart of Jesus, he, he, he goes to work. We not only see the way he feels, He gets to work here. And so just uh, uh, insight number two had to do with uh, the work of Jesus. And uh, we see his activity here. It says, uh, then he went up, and it's not a closed casket. It's like this stretcher called a beer. Then he went up and touched the beer that they were carrying uh, him on. And the bearers, uh, stretcher bearers, they they, they stood still. And Jesus speaks. He says, "Uh, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And this is critical. Jesus gave him back to his mom. Jesus gave him back to his mother. What Jesus is doing here is not simply resuscitating an individual who had passed away. What Jesus is doing here is restoring this mom to her son. Restoring this son to his mom. And by the way, there's a little, little observation here. It says Jesus went up and touched touched this stretcher, this beer. Uh, in that land, in that world, one of the ways you could become ceremonially unclean was coming in contact with a dead body. So you touch a dead body, you touch a stretcher, dead body's on, you are now ceremonially unclean, and you had to go through this elaborate ceremonial washing thing in order to be clean again and kind of to reenter a community with your family and friends. I just want you to see something here. When Jesus reaches out and touches this guy, Uncleanness doesn't get transferred from the guy to Jesus. Life gets transferred from Jesus to the guy. <laughs> Jesus is not contaminated by the, by the corpse. The young man is brought back to life by Jesus. Now, uh, Jesus does this three times in the Gospels. And each time, it's a story of restoration, of relationship. Not just that someone comes back to life, but that people are reunited. Uh, There's this one here with this widow who loses her son. The other one, there is a guy by the name of Jairus. He comes to Jesus, falls on his knees, begs Jesus. My 12-year-old daughter, my only daughter, is dying. You've got to get to my house quick. She dies while they're on the way. It says that Jesus... Uh, says to the girl, little girl, I tell you, get up. Takes her by the hand. But then Jesus gives her back to her parents. It's like they lost their daughter. He restores the daughter, the 12-year-old girl, to her parents. The third story, a guy by the name of Lazarus, he has, a brother, uh, he has two sisters, Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus. They lived in the town of Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. They had opened their home to Jesus, good friends with Jesus. Lazarus dies. Jesus goes to the house. Martha comes out, one of the sisters, and she says, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. You healed so many other people, and you weren't here for us. Mary comes out and says, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. You wonder if it's something they've been repeating to each other for a couple days. And when Mary comes out and says, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't, would have died, it says Jesus wept. He just cries over the situation. But when Martha comes out, and Jesus raises Lazarus, so that's, that's number three. You've got the widow's son from the village of Nain. You've got Jairus' daughter, and then you've got Lazarus, who was restored to his sisters. But when Jesus is in this conversation with Martha, he says something that I think is critical that has to do with his essence, what Jesus says to Martha is this statement right there. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says that, like, after Lazarus dies. He says, Martha, I am resurrection and I am life. Not just that I cause life, but that I am life in my very being, and giving life is part of my job description. I am resurrection, I am life. I am death reverser, and I am life giver. I am death reverser, I am life giver. I am the one who has come to restore all that is broken and wrong. I've come to restore and reclaim all that which is broken and wrong. So i got a question. If Jesus had the power to do this, why would he only do it three times? Jesus' ministry is like three years long. My math skills aren't great, but I'm kind of thinking that average is one a year. I'm kind of thinking he encountered more funerals than that. If he could do this, why did he only do it three times? Why didn't he do it 30 times? Why didn't he do it 300 times? And I think the most difficult question, why did he do it at all? What's he doing here in calling life back in to three individuals? And I think what he's up to here, not only in the three resurrections that he did, but also in the healings that he did, I believe what he's doing is showing in miniature what he would one day do in totality. I think what he's doing here is showing partly, kind of exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, He's showing partly what he will one day do completely because at the very end of our Bible, we have the full coming of something called the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. And so, then next to the last page in your Bible, you would read this in Revelation chapter 21 He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more, there will be no more, there will be no more death. When God's kingdom comes in its fullness, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain, for the whole old order of things is gone, and that's a day at the end of time. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is he's showing in miniature what will someday happen in totality. Now, if you want to do a a deeper dive on this, and I I would recommend it, this is so worth thinking about, uh, pick up this little book from a friend uh, it's called a Doubter's Guide to Jesus, written by John Dixon. Uh, it takes different aspects of Jesus' life. Jesus as a teacher, Jesus as Savior. Ah, Jesus is healer. John asks the questions, what is Jesus doing with his healings? And so a little quote from John's book. John wrote this, uh, Jesus' uh, ministry, his healings, they are a sign within history of the restoration of all things at the at the end of history. Indulge me, please, and campuses too. Can we read this out loud? Ready? It is a sign within history of the restoration of all things at the end of history. John uses a beautiful image. It's like a movie trailer. It's like a preview, Uh, the rest of the quote. Uh, Jesus' power over sickness Evil and nature are a they're a preview, they're like a trailer, you might say, of God's coming kingdom. uh, A trailer for a movie is like two minutes to show you what the whole two-hour movie is like. And so as Jesus walks, as Jesus teaches about this thing called the kingdom of God that is coming, I think he's going exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. You want to know what it's like when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness? The blind see, the deaf hear paralyzed walk, a mom gets restored to her son. This is a preview of the coming kingdom. What's happening in the ministry of Jesus is an invasion. The future is invading the present. Now, did people in the village of Nain, two crowds, right? The crowd traveling with Jesus, the funeral procession, the crowd coming out, did they get that? I don't think so. But when they see this, what are you supposed to do with that? Jesus must be a, a what, a, a wizard? A, a, a Gandalf type? I mean, what, 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 what is he? What is he? Who is he? And they begin to speculate right here in this story. So uh, insight number three of our story has to do with the identity, the identity of Jesus, which is the crowd is watching this. and They go, what do we do with this? Who is this? What is this? And so we find these words beginning in uh, just uh, verse 16. It said they were filled with awe, no kidding, and they praise God because they see the work of almighty God at work in Jesus. And they go this, a great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to the help of his people. A great, a great what? A great, Jesus is a great prophet. And he was approximate. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of Almighty God. And Jesus is speaking on behalf of God the Father. They were correct, but they just didn't go far enough. But they went, a prophet, a prophet has appeared among us. Does that seem weird to you? That of all the conclusions one might draw, they chose, oh, a prophet has appeared among us. What's up with that? Okay. There were two, two resurrections of children that you will find in the Old Testament of your Bible. Two. And they're done by the, through the prayers of the wonder twins, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. Eight hundred years before the time of Jesus. Elijah is on the run. He's in a village called Zarephath. A widow shares food with him. Her son dies. Through Elijah's prayers, the son of the widow of Zarephath comes back to life. Elisha is traveling through a village and the name of the village that he's traveling through is Shunem. It's near a main road, he passes this way along, a husband and wife, little, they add on, they build a little room for him, so that when he passes through, it's his own like personal little hotel room. It's just very, very simple. There's a bed, there's a place for him to sleep, so he has consistent lodging. This woman is childless, and Elijah says, he prophesies by this time next year, God will give you a child. She says, don't even get my hopes up. She has a child within a year, the child starts to grow, Child starts to speak, child starts to interact, her boy dies, and through Elisha's prayers, the widow of Shunem, the woman of Shunem, she's married, her son is restored to her, Shunem. (laughs) You know where Shunem was? Shunem was like three miles from Nain, where Jesus raises restores this widow's son. Shunem on one side of the hill, Nain on the other side of the hill. I'm telling you, if you lived in Nain, you would have been aware of what had happened 800 years before in your backyard. What Jesus is doing looks really Elijah-like. 800 years without this happening. What Jesus is doing looks awfully... Elisha-like. And so their conclusion, standing outside the city gate where these two crowds meet, is a prophet. A prophet like Elijah and a prophet like Elisha has now uh, uh, appeared among us. Now, I want to show you something. I, 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 I just lean in this just for a second because this will help you understand a, another kind of key story in our Bible. And it's like two chapters later. Uh, this story with the widow's son is in Luke chapter 7. If you looked over in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is not with a mob, not getting swarmed. He's with his disciples and he asks them a question Who do people think I am? And the disciples go, Oh my goodness, there's all kinds of speculation as to who you are. And Jesus comes, kind of Yeah, like, like, like what? And this is their answer. This is uh, Luke chapter 9, just a couple pages later, uh, down around verse 18, uh, verse 19. It says, Oh, some, some people say you're like John the Baptist who's come back to life. Others say, like, you're who? <laughs> Elijah, the prophet. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Why would they say Elijah? And why would they say a resurrection of one of the prophets? I think it's because of the raising of this widow's son down the road. And Jesus looks at him and says, Okay. Some people think I'm a reincarnation of John the Baptist or Elijah, another prophet. What do you say? I mean, here's this question: Who do you say I am? That's the speculation, that's the word on the street. What do you say? Who do you say I am? And Jesus' disciple Peter, who is often the spokesman for the group, kind of leans in and goes, You are God's Messiah. You You are the one with the anointing. You are the promised king. You are the Messiah. And Peter's right, but it didn't go far enough. <laughs> I don't think Peter has any idea the type of Messiah that Jesus would be, the suffering servant on our behalf. By the way, I think that's one of the most important questions in our lives is, who do you, who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? Some of you go, well, "I think he was a Jeff, I think he was a brilliant teacher. He seemed to claim to be more than that with I am resurrection, I am life, I am death reverser, I am life giver. Who do you say is, yeah, I haven't decided yet. comes a day when you need to decide. I don't know if I trust him yet. Get to know him and trust him more. Who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? And if he is... If he is almighty God who has come to earth in human form to teach and to heal and give these pictures of full restoration at the end of time, if he suffers on our behalf and is raised back to life as a picture and image of the full restoration and resurrection that will happen someday, let me just say this, he he is deserving of my attention. (laughs) If he is God Almighty and Lord of Lords, he deserves my attention. And he deserves my attention in one particular area that we'll focus on as we wrap up today. I have to lean into one more area before before we wrap up this conversation. Because it has to do with God's work in you as the people of compassion. So insight number four just has to do with the community of Jesus. The community of Jesus. The Lord of compassion desires to empower a people of compassion, and this is basic training. By basic training, I mean as the Apostle Paul was writing a new generation of Christians, new believers in and around the city of Ephesus as part of their basic training. He wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind and... Be kind and compassionate to one another because the Lord of compassion desires to have a community marked by compassion. Down the road, there's a city of Colossae. And the letter to the Colossians in our Bible is kind of like their kind of like basic fundamental training. And to Colossians, we find these words in Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dear beloved, clothe yourselves with. Compassion, it's like a coat, it's like a robe. Put on compassion, cloak yourselves with compassion, because the Lord of compassion desired to empower a community of compassion. But remember something compassion moves. Compassion is not just something you feel, compassion has legs, compassion moves. Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain. Jump ahead to Luke chapter 10, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. A guy's traveling down the road, he sees a guy that's been mugged, beaten within an inch of his life. It says he had pity on him, he had compassion on him, and crossed to the other side of the road to help the guys out. Compassion moves. Luke 15, a few chapters after that, the story of the prodigal son where a kid runs away from home, burns through a great deal of the family's equity, and then comes back ragged and starving. And the dad sees his ragged, skinny kid coming home, and it says the father had compassion on him and ran down the road to embrace him in meeting because compassion moves. Compassion is not just something we feel. Compassion is something that is active, that does something. And so I would like to give you some advice, clear, unadulterated advice. Because when someone is going through a season of loss, I am frequently baffled in how to serve that person. And so what I want to do, I want to leave you with something that is very tangible and I think very good Uh, I mentioned this some years back, and it was just one of those things that just stuck. I would love to revive it and to have it become part of our vocabulary. And some of you will remember this as soon as I start talking about it. You show up at a funeral home, and someone is, is grieving a loss, a deep loss. And you kind of wait in line at the funeral home for the visitation, and you wind your way up, and when you get to them, you say, listen, we love you. We're so sorry for what you're experiencing. And because your heart is going out to them, this is what we tell them. What we tell them is this if you need, help me here, if you need anything, do what? Call me. If you need anything, call me. Listen, and we mean it. We would bend over backwards to help that person if they say listen I really really need your help we mean it if you need anything call me now what we've done in that moment is we've just promised everything but we really haven't delivered anything it's like handing someone a blank check but it's not signed and it's not dated if you need anything we've promised everything we have not and we have put two burdens on their shoulders first thing now to get our help they have to they have to what They they have to they have to they have to ask Not everybody's good at asking for help. Number two, they have to be creative enough to know what they need. And often, someone drowning in grief or deeply depressed lacks the creativity to know what would be life-giving to them. So here is my word of advice. Ready? Not necessarily there at the funeral home, but the next week or two weeks later, ready? Offer something Specific. So here's, here's my mantra. Here we go. Memorize this one. Doing anything is better than promising everything. Do something. It's not going to take their pain away. It doesn't have to. It just lets them know that they're loved, and perhaps they will experience the love and the presence of God through your love and through your presence. Doing anything is better than promising everything. So offer something tangible. Hey, um, I'm wondering if we can bring a meal next Thursday. no absolutely not. Our refrigerator's packed. We've got enough food in this thing to feed a small village, but you've offered something specific on a specific day. You've offered something. Uh, Hey, uh, there's a game on Saturday, three o'clock. Come over and watch the game with us. Paul's going to be there. John's going to be there. We're not going to make you talk. We're not going to debrief. I'm just thinking you might just want to do something normal and hang out. You've offered, no, 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 we're going to be out of town on Saturday. You've offered something specific. Hey, uh, this is a call a couple weeks later. Our cottage is free the week of August 6. Don't know what plans you guys have for August, if this would be healing to sit by a lake for a week, but our, August, our, our cottage is free the week of August 6. I'll reach out to you in a week or so to see if it's something you want to take advantage of. See, but you've offered something specific that they can, yeah, no, sorry, won't work, but it, but it might. You've offered something tangible and specific. Doing anything is better than offering You know, everything. Uh, It's a text. And the text just says, hey, and this is a text. Three weeks later, it's all the flowers in a tragedy come in within the first few days. The notes, the sympathy. And then the rest of the world gets back to their lives. Three weeks later, three months later, the text that says, I'm thinking about you. We haven't forgotten or with you, it can be incredibly healing, reminding people that they're not alone. And some of you are thinking, okay, Jeff, but isn't a handwritten note better than a text? Yes, but the text you send is better than the note that you procrastinate. Write that down. The text that you send is better than the note that you procrastinate. Now, this isn't just death. People go through all kinds of losses. They lose a job opportunity that they were counting on. They lose a job that they've had for 20 years, and they don't know what's next. They put in yet another bid on another house and got uh, someone put in a higher bid, a better offer. <laughs> they lose that house or the idea of that house. They lose a friend who moves across the country. They lose a sport because of an injury, a team sport that they've, that's been life-giving for years, Compassion, compassion, compassion moves. Here we go. Jesus, the Lord of compassion, desired to empower a community of compassion. That's basic training for the family of Ada Bible Church. Someday the kingdom will come and Jesus told us to pray for it. The Lord's Prayer, part of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We're saying that day cannot come soon enough. When God repairs and restores all that is lost and broken, that day will come. But there's another aspect where you say, may the kingdom come right here, right now, in me. It is (laughs) you become exhibits A, B, and C. Of his healing power and of his restoration. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for something in the future and we're praying for something in our hearts Right here, right now, in me. Right here, right now, in me. Let's whisper it together, ready? Right here, right now, in me. One more time softly, just as a prayer, ready? Right here, right now, in me. Let me pray. Gracious God, um, please be at work in our lives, to transform us into your community of compassion. May we fall more in love with your son and trust him more because of who he was, what he felt, and what he did. As we see him, may we be drawn to him, and may it draw us to desire to be like him. We ask this in the name of Jesus who came here for us. Amen. Thanks so much for being here today.